you know, in theory, it sounds like a great idea to have technology to be more efficient in policing efforts. And I think that's like kind of a huge takeaway of this book for me is technologies that sound like great ideas and, you know, you don't see any obvious issues with can have some very serious, like negative consequences, especially for marginalized communities. Welcome to the DFN podcast. I'm Jade, your host today and the Director of Strategic Initiatives here at Data Feminism Network. We've hosted a lot of book clubs and we know many of you have requested that they are recorded. So today you have the opportunity to listen in on our Race After Technology book club. We are so excited to share this episode and we hope you enjoy. Hello everyone. Thank you so much for joining our Race After Technology book club. Before we dive into our discussion, I will go into a brief overview of the book. Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin explores the impacts of a society that equates technical advancements with social progress and urges us to take a step back and consider who is benefiting from new technology and who is further disadvantaged. Essentially, it's to challenge the idea that newer means better, time means social progress. Today, we see a shift from explicit discriminatory laws to more subtle, colorblind ideologies that are masking their destruction and harm to marginalized groups under the guise of social progress. Benjamin coins the term New Jim Code to describe the employment of new technologies that are promoted and perceived as progressive, but inadvertently reproduce existing social inequalities. The New Jim Code encompasses a wide range of discriminatory designs, some that explicitly amplify hierarchies, others that ignore and thus replicate social divisions, and many that actually aim to fix racial bias, but end up doing the opposite. Benjamin's hope with this book is to challenge coded inequity and the ways in which whiteness becomes the default setting for tech development. Getting into chapter one, it discusses how technology that ignores the ways that the past shapes the present inadvertently perpetuate racial inequalities that stem from slavery and Jim Crow. Jim Crow was a series of laws and regulations in the US South from the 1890s to the 1950s that legalized racial segregation, oppression, and injustice. The term can be used to describe an era, a geographic region, laws, institutions, customs, and a code of behavior that upholds white supremacy. Chapter two explores how predictive algorithms that rely upon historical data build upon and reproduce social hierarchies. Benjamin also argues that software reflect the ideologies of the programmers themselves, whether intentional or unintentional. Chapter three looks at the ways different forms of technology render people of color invisible or hypervisible and reveals how surveillance disproportionately impacts marginalized people. Chapter four talks about technical fixes to mass incarceration and prison overcrowding like e-monitors and how they introduce new opportunities for surveillance and racial targeting. Chapter five, the final chapter delves into prison abolition and discusses how the divestment of resources into systems as they are does not solve the problem if the systems are foregrounded on discrimination, meaning if you're investing money into schools, but schools themselves are institutions that are built on discrimination, it's not going to be 
solving the issues. We need to address the discrimination itself. We also need to benefit who is benefiting and profiting from technology and what the actual outcomes of this technology is on marginalized groups. All right, before we get into the discussion questions, why don't we go around and say our name, pronouns, and where we are calling in from. I'll go ahead and start. My name is Jade. My pronouns are she, hers, and I'm calling in from Vancouver in Canada. I can go next. My name is Ali. My pronouns are also she, her, and I am calling in from New York City. I'll pass it over to Simran. Hi, everyone. My name is Simran. My pronouns are she, her, and I am also calling in from Vancouver, Canada. Hi, everyone. I'm Electra. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm calling in from sunny San Diego. I'll pass it over to Brenda. Hi, my name is Brenda. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm calling in also from Vancouver. All right, amazing. We have um, a lot of representation across Canada and the U.S. Well, why don't we go ahead and dive right into our discussion questions. The first question that I have for everybody is, how does this book change the way that you view technology? I can get us started. I think the first thing that this book made me realize was that we often look at technology as a very precise, pristine mechanism um, that seems to be so perfect since it's a robot. Um, and we often forget the methodologies that go into creating these systems. Um, and often a lot of these methodologies overlook the possible bias yeah, I think for me, the change or the yeah, the way I view technology is quite similar. It was just, it almost feels like it was like math, like, you know, it's just facts, like the way it works, it's just like straightforward. But I guess um, as someone who is not um, a computer scientist or a software engineer, I don't fully understand how like coding and things, um, like how to make technological algorithms work like the way they do. But it just seems like the yeah, like the systems that are being created are not as straightforward as as we may thought. And then when you start like paying attention to it, then you realize all of the other ways that it actually affects your life and it changes. Um, yeah, it just kind of a complete different perspective now for me. Yeah, I totally agree with both Brenda and Electra. I think this book has kind of demystified my view of technology and as a data scientist and as someone who reads a lot about like data bias and data ethics and reads lots of books that are kind of along the same vein as um, race after technology I have kind of questioned the objectivity of technology and data in the past but what kind of sets this book aside and how it's changed my view of technology beyond other books I've read is I found it focused more on like the history aspect, whereas data feminism focuses on power, Invisible Women focuses on like, you know, the gender data gap. And while all of these books definitely touch on how history influences um, building algorithms and, and the data that powers them, I thought that this one kind of honed in on that history component a bit more and reminded us that you need to question like how the past shapes the present. So that was definitely a key takeaway for me. 
Yeah, I totally agree with all the points made as well. And going off of what Ali said about how it just brought up more questions about technology, I think that's definitely what the book did for me and just made me question more about any piece of technology, thinking about who made it, what were the intentions behind why it was made, who was it made for, who was it funded by. And so I think I've just become a lot more aware of asking those questions behind every piece of technology. Yeah, for me, I probably up until I read this book or had started delving into the realm of data feminism, I was definitely on the train thinking that all technology kind of means we're moving forward and we're developing into this progressive society and all these new forms of technology are making us better and faster and smarter. And because it's, you know, this seemingly unbiased technology that's making our decisions and a lot more people have access to that that kind of automatically means we are at an improvement. And so I like the way that this book really explicitly kind of points out the way that history is quite literally coded into the technology that we're using. Okay, let's go on to our second question, which is, in the context of tech design, do you think good intentions matter? Yes, Allie. Yeah, I'll be real quick to jump in here. I think like obvious answer, of course, intentions matter, but in and of themselves, they're not enough. Like you can have the best of intentions, but we need to be intentional in our efforts to think beyond those good intentions. Like, so to consider and question who is benefiting from the technology and who is further disadvantaged. So kind of like what Simran was talking about questioning who made the technology, what were their intentions, what were their goals, um, but extending even beyond that, like what consequences, unintentional consequences could also come from this technology. And that's, you know, the reality is we all have our own biases. Many of us, especially in tech, will suffer from the privilege hazard and, and collective bias, collective blind spots. So even with the best intentions, it's so important to think about how the past shapes the present and to have marginalized communities and, and dis, uh, diverse groups of people involved throughout the design process to you know, avoid those collective blind spots and help us identify those unintentional consequences and things we might have missed, even if we do have the best intentions. So yes, it matters, but it's, it's just the start. Um, I'll jump back in here. I think when you think about intentions, even if they're good intentions, there's still something underneath the surface of these intentions, which is profits. I think at the end of the day with most technology, that is really the goal for most of these companies with the technology that they're creating. And so in that case, then the intentions are, you know, not for the good of the cause at the end of the day, if it is for profits, then that means, you know, people's lives are, are not going to be looked at first. Anything for the profits, it's going to be put first. And I think that's what's leading to a lot of the outcomes that are not actually good or creating what they say they are, because in my mind, it's because they actually just want the profits. I think that's super well said, Jade. It really um, just kind of highlights like, sure, I'm sure no one is, like, intentionally trying to harm communities or people, right? But 
at the same time, like if you're working for a big corporation who is just like trying to make things that people will buy, right? Like what are the intentions really? Like I'm sure like in an individual level, you can say that the intentions are good and most likely they are, but on a on a big picture level, like when you look at it from above, what are the intentions actually good? Like that is just, I don't know. It was just kind of like in my head as I'm thinking, sure, Apple makes like changes their models like every time. Like, is that really because they are trying to make our life better? And I'm sure they're like, think about how to make people's life better in the process of making it. But at the end of the day, that is not their intention, right? And I feel like the same thing applies for many other big corporations who are working in technology. Yeah. Yeah. And the way then they're going to be measuring the success is probably through the profits. Yeah. I think looking at the profitable side of things, it's really important because we, we keep seeing how these apps are, especially AI is used to save money all around, especially with businesses. I mean, the Amazon example was really clear where they were using AI to pick up resumes and their algorithm they were using was gender bias and also possibly racist. Um, and, and so we're seeing how these algorithms, algorithms are being implemented to save money and they're not intentionally bad. They're just poorly designed and they're not designed, I think, with the, with the intention of being discriminatory, but unfortunately they are because the data that's being put in to the algorithm is already discriminatory. And I think what Ali said at the beginning was really important is making sure that we have a diverse workforce and that we have people questioning these things, questioning what data is going into these, these AI systems, questioning how people are designing things, looking at methodologies from the beginning um, and making sure that they don't turn into these uh, discriminatory tools. Yeah, I think one other thing that it also made me think of in terms of intentions is I think it's important to balance the intentions of everyone involved. So as we're talking about in terms of the company's perspective, their intentions are profit and that's their focus. So, okay, great. If those are your intentions and then you have to figure out how to work within those bounds, but then it's also looking at the user. And for example, in the Amazon example, the user of that technology would be someone trying to get an interview and trying to get a job. And so their intentions with using that technology are to be able to successfully communicate themselves and hopefully get a job. So balancing the intentions of all the users of a technology, I think is in terms of this question of, in the context of tech design, do you think good intentions matter? I think they matter, but it's not the intentions of one group. It should be a community-based effort around whatever that piece of technology is. Yeah, that's a really great point, Simran. Something else um, that I'm thinking about as well is do-good technology that's marketed um, very outwardly as something that's going to fix particular problems or is actually marketed as an unbiased tool. I think that's also where we run into a lot of trouble because it's very easy just to buy that and say like, oh yeah, well, it is helpful. So Benjamin really like emphasizes that we need to be questioning the outcome much more than intention at the end of the day and the impact especially that it has on marginalized groups. Okay, let's go to the next question, which is how are history and culture embedded into technology? And is it possible for technology to exist outside of a socio-historical context? This question has me like spiraling. Is it possible for anything to exist out of a socio-historical context? I, I don't know anymore. 
I'm agreeing with Ali on this one. It has me spiraling. And I almost kind of want to think I, there's everything is inherently biased, even our search engines, the way we develop things like Google, for example, you might think that's not a biased search engine. Everything is inherently biased, unfortunately. And I think it's really hard to come up with something that's not impacted by history. But that's why we need to keep questioning how things are developed, who's developing it, how, yeah, Simran said, how is it funded and where is it coming from? Yeah, something actually that um, we discussed in the book club for algorithms of oppression um, that Sophia Noble really pushed was for different people who are going to be working as software engineers or within big tech companies that they need to have training on history and of the history of, of racism and different forms of oppression and how they manifest today because ignoring it obviously is leading to a lot of problems and leading to technology then being something that is worsening it so i think we need to yeah definitely come to terms with the fact that i things probably cannot exist outside of a socio-historical context things can't be unbiased and start learning and bringing in multiple perspectives and doing what we can i think that education component is so important because at the end of the day like we've said here Technology is made by humans and humans have biases that are like inherently shaped by history and society. And it's so funny, whenever I talk to other data scientists or other people in the data field and I tell them, you know, what kind of work I do, they're like, wow, that's so interesting and that's so niche. And I think there's like two important parts of that sentence. There's the, wow, that's so interesting. And when I hear that most of the time, I do believe it's like genuine interest. People do think it's an interesting topic. And then the second part of that sentence is, it's so cool like that you found that niche. And although I do think that data like ethics, data equity, and like this sort of stuff is becoming less and less niche, it's still considered niche, even though it's something that people are interested in learning more about because people do want to you know, do good. And so I think it's so important that anyone who's studying any data field at any level um, should have some sort of training in you know history and society. I really like the education piece, Ali. I think that's super important that we we incorporate these into learning uh, learning plans, especially, but also that we have regulations for organizations like Amazon or Google um, to make sure that they're not able to create these mechanisms that are enforcing discriminatory practices as well. All right, let's go on to the next question, which is getting into some more specific examples from the book, how do technological fixes to the US criminal justice system, for example, electronic monitors, predictive policing, virtual reality training, how do these stunt social progress and hinder abolitionist efforts? I can go ahead and start um, with one of the examples, which is about virtual reality training. She does have a full section talking about virtual reality and how it's kind of used as an empathy tool, but it's really exploiting pain for profits. And the idea is, you know, to get people to donate more money to causes or have people kind of experience the day in somebody else's shoes to then feel more empathetic to racism or discrimination or harm. But it's kind of a messed up concept in general that you have to put yourself in that position to feel empathy, but you're still kind of paying money for this virtual reality headset. Um, one thing 
that she talks about is when Mark Zuckerberg, um, the founder of Facebook, he used virtual reality to lead um, an audience, I think it was through a video, um, through the aftermath of a hurricane. And there were not good responses from that. They were saying that he was, you know, exploiting the pain that the people were going through all to kind of show off a new tool of virtual reality. Um, but one thing that Benjamin talks about is how virtual reality training was being used for people who were in prison to kind of learn um, how to be in an office job or how to work at a store or in a different setting, but that with the way that society treats people who were convicted of a crime, they're not going to be able to get those jobs anyways. It's a highly discriminatory system. So the fact that it's seen as like a technological fix, it's like, oh, virtual reality training, it's going to help people get jobs because they're going to know how to do them. But the job market itself is probably not going to hire them in the first place. It you know, it's not doing anything for social progress or for abolitionist efforts. And it's just kind of marketed as this do-good technology, but we're not fixing the actual root of the problem, which is that people who were convicted of crimes are highly discriminated against. And also the fact that it's majority or disproportionately people of color who are convicted of crimes in the U.S. The first thing I think of when I read this question is the... Uh, Predpol example, the example of predictive policing that uh, Dr. Benjamin talks about in her book. I think it was also mentioned in Weapons of Mass Destruction, but it essentially touches on this idea of feedback loops, which is like a common theme throughout this book. But essentially the technology, how it works is it's supposed to help police officers identify areas of high crime and be more effective in their policing efforts. But what ends up happening is when you send police officers to an area that has historically had higher crime rates, they will obviously catch more crime in that area because they are being sent to that area, which then tells the algorithm that there is high crime in that area. And it kind of has this like self-fulfilling prophecy effect, even when those crimes are oftentimes, you know, nuisance crimes like homelessness or, I don't know, like smoking weed. (laughs) And so I think that is an example of, you know, in theory, it sounds like a great idea to have technology to be more efficient in policing efforts. And I think that's like kind of a huge takeaway of this book for me is technologies that sound like great ideas and, you know, you don't see any obvious issues with can have some very serious like negative consequences, especially for marginalized communities. I'm really glad you brought up this example, Ali, because with Jim Crow, which was what segregated neighborhoods in the first place, the effects of this, of course, are still so prominent in the US. So geography is a very effective proxy for race. And so this technology, it's really then, yeah, levering the society that Jim Crow had set up. So Predpol is very literally the new Jim Code. This also makes me think about abolition in general, prison abolition and sort of the idea to think about a society that can exist outside of this prison system and policing system that is foregrounded on discrimination. And there was one really, really interesting quote in the book that 
blew my mind, which was um, thinking about an abolitionist society is not something that's difficult to do because people in wealthy neighborhoods in California, they are living in an abolitionist society. You don't see police around. People aren't getting randomly searched. There are good schools. People are able to get good jobs. So we don't actually have to think that hard to what, you know, a new future could possibly look like that we're not relying on the police to keep neighborhoods safe. So that is something that really blew my mind and I think kind of gives us the answer for, you know, where we could be putting in funding to actually build the society that we would like to. And definitely investing more in the prison system is absolutely not the answer, especially investing in technology that's supposed to be making the prison system better. Again, you're still investing into a system as it is, which is highly discriminatory. So it's not going to be solving the problem. It's going to be making race relations far worse in the U.S. Okay, we're on to our final question, which is what do you think an emancipatory approach to technology could look like? Or in other words, how could we use technology for good or use technology to achieve abolitionist efforts or to create a society where everybody is benefiting equitably from its use. I think there's a few different points that we talked about in other questions that definitely relate to this. One of them being the piece around education and increasing education on these subjects for the people that will, will eventually be you know, end up being the software engineers and the designers of these technologies, starting education from the ground up um, so that they're aware of all the potential biases and negative impacts that technology can have. So I think the education piece, and then I think another thing is just focusing more on the design process and the methodologies that we're using. I think often with these exciting technologies, we focused on the outcome, um, kind of all the different examples that have been brought up and the outcome can sound rosy and wonderful um, when you're just focused on that and you're not thinking through the design process and thinking through how it will impact different communities and different marginalized groups. So I think more focus on the design and the testing phase of these technologies is maybe one approach to hopefully creating more benefit beneficial pieces of technology for all groups. I totally agree with that. I feel like there's almost like a lag of feedback happening where like there's just things being implemented and things being put in place. And it's just so clear to so many people that those things don't work, but it's just for some reason so hard to go back and change them. So I feel like having like increasing the time of pilot projects and testing projects and, you know, like actually like having public policy um, agents and big corporations and stuff like that, like engage with communities and see like, does this actually work or does that doesn't work? And then the other element that came to my mind was obviously representation, like having people with different experiences and different opinions and education backgrounds, like be involved in a progress that's, that is going to affect them. I think that is a big piece as well. This may be a bit pessimistic of me, but I think at the end of the day, we're going to need some regulation of these massive tech companies, some laws. I mean, like in over the past few months, Elon Musk let go of Twitter's entire trust and safety team, which is a perfect example of a company prioritizing 
newer, faster, better technology over people's safety. And that just shouldn't be allowed. And as much as I would love to imagine that these big tech companies who are having this impact on society are going to start prioritizing, you know, people over profit on their own. Unfortunately, I don't think that is going to be the case to the extent that it needs to be. So pressure from society is going to be huge too. So making sure we raise that awareness and people are putting that pressure on tech companies and and on um, governments and lawmakers to make those laws. But I think laws and, and regulation will, will play a huge role in the future as well. Yes, I definitely, definitely agree. And on the note of profits too, and we kind of think of who is profiting, I think it's time for different people to be profiting off of technology. So, you know, we should definitely be supporting technology that's created by diverse groups of people, that's created by women, non-binary people, people of color, and yeah, help them get the money for the work that they're putting into technology instead of these large corporations that have created further inequity. Um, to conclude, I wanted to read a quote, which is, I believe, the final line of the book. An emancipatory approach to technology, which Dr. Benjamin explains, entails an appreciation for the aesthetic dimensions of resisting new gym code and a commitment to coupling our critique with creative alternatives that bring to life liberating and joyful ways of living in and organizing our world. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our book club for Race After Technology. You can find our study guide on our website, datafeminismnetwork.org. Please support Dr. Benjamin by purchasing the book and reading it. It is an incredible book. There is so much we did not cover. We could probably talk for about 10 hours about this incredible book.